So as we finish uh, chapter four, um, we're going to see two uh, contrasting interactions uh, that Jesus has with different people, um, and also some very important perspectives uh, for us as his followers uh, as he interacts with these two different groups, um, and particularly the, the interaction or the perspective, I should say, that we're going to be seeing that Jesus is going to give us is uh, what we might even call sort of a, um, a kingdom work ethic. Um, you ever meet someone uh, when <laughs> you meet someone that it seems like they're always working? And I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way, like not necessarily like their, their job, like they're always on their phone trying to make a deal, but, but someone who's always just kind of the wheels are always spinning. They're always working at something. Um, you know, for myself, my brain is very much like that, where I'm, I'm going around, you know, my, my home or I'm out somewhere, and I'm always kind of looking around my home for the next sort of project to work on to make our home more our home, to make it more personal. Um, I, I'm very sentimental. I'm very nostalgic. So I'm always thinking, how can I personalize something so it's more important than just, you know, a, a plate or a fork? How can that fork be so special to us? Uh, I'm, my mind is always working in that way. It's just kind of how I am. And it never really rests. Uh, I'm always thinking, how can I go above and beyond? I, I want to make memories and not just memories, but I want to make traditions. Uh, that's just how I am. I want things to be meaningful. So my mind is always at work. As far as that goes, I have a very strong work ethic when it comes to trying to personalize things and uh, make them more sentimental. Um, also, uh, I've, I've told this to people over the years, but whenever I'm sitting with someone, if I'm sitting some, with someone one-on-one or a small group of people, uh, and I don't do this perfectly, so don't think that I'm, you know, whatever, but, um, but I've, had, I've made a habit over the years to think to myself when I'm sitting with someone how can I add to their life? What can I do to, to bless them? Uh, that's what I'm thinking. And again, I don't do this perfectly. Sometimes I'm not in the greatest mood or I'm thinking about myself, whatever, but, but I've tried to make that a habit of my life to where when I'm with someone, my thought first goes to how can I improve their life somehow? How can I push them forward? How can I encourage them? Um, you know, with my baseball players, uh, it's, it's crazy how distracted my brain is when I'm trying to coach or practice because every time I interact with a kid, I'm not just thinking about teach them how to throw or whatever, but I am always thinking, how can I bless this kid? How can I draw them into, not just into myself and just a, a, a deeper relationship, but eventually, ultimately, I want to point these kids to Jesus. Uh, but I'm always thinking that even when I'm out just in practice. I don't get in just baseball mode when I'm on the field. I'm always working in my mind. And today, we're going to be seeing this because in this life, we're going to have a number of different types of people that come into our lives. We're going to have family members and extended family neighbors and coworkers and neighbors and uh, kids we go to school with, uh, our, kids, uh, our, our kids' friends and then our kids' friends' parents. Some of these people have maybe had a religious background. Some of them come from maybe a very moral background. Some of them come from a very chaotic background. Uh, some of them you've had a lot of good integrity with, and some of them maybe you've totally blown it with. Maybe you grew up with them and you guys were non-believers when you were younger and got in a lot of trouble, whatever it might be. But there's going to be a number of different people that God is going to bring into your life all the time. And whether we realize it or not, we are always at work when we are with them. Now, I'm not saying we're at good work. Maybe our, our work is being selfish. You know, we're, we're kind of working a deal. How can we get them to bless us? Maybe that's kind of how we're at work. 
or how can we be at work to prove that I'm right in a situation they're wrong? But we're always at work doing something when we are with these different people uh, over the years. And our approach with every relationship is going to have some kind of a motive, whether it's them serving us or us serving them. And one of the ways that we're at work with people, unfortunately, is sometimes our work is prejudging them. We'll prejudge them. We'll uh, we'll look at their life. We'll, we'll meet someone for the first time, or maybe it's an old friend, and we just kind of prejudge them. And when it comes to our faith in particular, we might think things like, well, they would never be open to the gospel. We, we prejudge them. They would never listen to me if I ever tried to share Jesus with them. Or maybe, maybe it's someone we've shared with in the past, but then maybe we give up on them. And so now we're kind of giving up our work. And this part of the story with Jesus, we're going to see him interact with two different types of people. Both of these people are from groups that in their own right uh, are unlikely to believe in Christ and entrust him as their savior. But that doesn't stop him from bringing his message of hope. He's our example of always being at work. He's our example of his perfect kingdom work ethic. So I want to pray now for our text. I want to pray for all the churches meeting across our country today. Ask the Lord that his word would find a home in our hearts. It would enter into our ears, maybe in our eyes if you're reading along with me, and, but ultimately find a home not just in our minds but in our hearts. Father, we thank you for this uh, day. We thank you for this great weather. We thank you for the team of people that come and help set up make these adjustments. We were laughing this morning about how um, our church has the agility of a cat. <laughs> we, uh, we just have, are very flexible. Somehow we end up landing on our feet when something new gets thrown at us. And we thank you, Lord, for just uh, the flexibility you've given us, our patience, the, the grace that you've given the folks in our church I'm thankful that we, we come here and we, we make these adjustments because what we love is your word. What we love is your bride. And we want to stay committed to your word and committed to your bride. And we want to lift up all the churches um, in our community, here in Escondido, in our state, in our country, and in this world that uh, are just making different decisions Whatever those decisions might be, we ask, Lord, that you would just lead them, guide them, help them, bring unity and faith, bring grace and comfort to those who are just struggling in different ways, and keep their shepherds close to your word and close to the cross as they just deal with the, the, the many, many different things that they have to deal with and make decisions on and conversations they have to have. But I hope and pray that this time, that all these churches are going through this, that this would be a strengthening time. Because we know that your church is going to be victorious. We are more than conquerors through your son. So help us, Lord, to continue to Bring the light and uh, the salt to the earth, the message of the gospel. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
So in John chapter 4, we'll be in 31. I'm just going to read through um, uh, 42. We'll be covering a little bit more than that, but I'll just start here with us. John chapter 4, 31. Meanwhile, this is after the interaction with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Well, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you've entered into their labor. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony when she said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have now heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So in this interaction, the disciples are urging Jesus to have a little break, get replenished, have some food. And he says, well, I've got some food you don't know about. And so what they hear in their mind is, uh, oh, oh, sorry, I, I've got food. I brought food. My bad. I didn't tell you. And they kind of, their response is kind of funny. They look around and they're just like, who, who brought him food? We didn't know that this happened. But then he clarifies his statement and corrects them. And he, if you recall from uh, Tyler's sermon, uh, he told the Samaritan woman that he also had water. And she thinks, well, I, I want this water. Where's this water that I can drink from? But it was a special kind of water that he was talking about. And now he's speaking of a different kind of food that he has. And now they want to know where this mysterious food all of a sudden appeared from. But this is also a different type of food, just like it's a different type of water. Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, when we think to ourselves, what does food do? Kids, kids, I see some kids back there. I see some kids over here. What, what is, what is, why do we eat food? What does food do for us? What are some of the things food does? Yes, sir. It helps us live. Exactly, it helps us live. It gives us energy. It helps us be healthy. It also makes us not be uh, hangry. <laughs> right? food, food is good for us. It gives us energy, keeps us alive. It also helps us to focus too. Right? If you ever, I mean, when you are, when you are hungry or hangry, uh, you can't keep your mind on a certain task. You get a little food in you, you go, okay, now I can focus. I can get back to work. Jesus lives off of. He gets his joy from. He gets his focus from. He gets his motivation from. He's energized by not the things that the world offers, even physical food, the most important thing that we need, but there's nothing more that energizes him, that feeds him, satisfies him than doing the work of his father. I'm going to come back to verses 35 to 38. I want to see how this scene ends and then go into the next scene and then we'll circle back. In verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. When she said, he told me that I, everything I ever did. 
And then when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed for two days, which is awesome, first of all, that they wanted him to stay. But it's awesome also that he stayed with them for two days. And many more believed. Why did they believe? Because of his word. Because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. That kind of got us in the door. We thank you for that. But now we have heard for ourselves his own word. And we know indeed that he is the savior of the world. It's interesting that the Samaritans say to the woman, we no longer just take your word for it, but we ourselves now have seen and heard, we believe that he's the savior. These are incredible words coming from these Samaritans. I can't tell you how many times you've probably had this experience where maybe you share the truth of Jesus with someone. You're talking about what he's done for you, who he is, what he came to do, giving them some kind of encouragement in God's words. I, so many times when I've done this, and I can, I can see that as they're listening to me, they, they believe me. They don't think I'm lying. They, they trust me. I've built some kind of relationship, some kind of history with them. They probably look at the Samaritan woman and think, we know her. She, she's not a crazy woman. We, we trust her. But, but when I'm talking with people, I can tell they, they believe me, but they don't believe the words that I'm saying. Does that make sense? Right? The actual words of God's word, the gospel. They're going, yeah, 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 no, no, it totally makes sense. I believe you. But, and they might not even say it explicitly, but I don't believe what you're saying. There's something that just isn't clicking in their minds, in their hearts. They believe me. They think I'm telling the truth. But something on the inside isn't happening. The truth isn't actually permeating their hearts. They listen, they agree, but nothing's changing. And I know for a fact, church, I know for a fact that I cannot change a heart. I, just, I can't do it. I do not have that power to change hearts. I know that I can't. I can't cause people to see all of a sudden to go from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. I don't have that ability. I can't make someone go from walking in spiritual death and all of a sudden they're spiritually alive. I don't have that ability. It's like the old saying, you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't cause him to drink. We saw a few weeks ago that the wind blows where it wishes. It's not the will of man. It's not the, uh, the, the, the trickery of man or the the wisdom of man, the way he crafts his words that causes men and women to become born again. No, the wind blows where it wishes. There's something more significant here about the faith of the Samaritans. At first, they believed something, something significant because of her, her testimony. It may have laid some, some groundwork for them. It kind of maybe got their interest in the door but it wasn't until they heard for themselves from the mouth of Jesus, it's only then that they truly believed in him as the Savior. But now the scene changes in verse 43. He continues to travel. It says, after the two days that he spent with these Samaritans, he departed for Galilee. And John has this little side note. It says, For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So John noted that Jesus had said this, and now Jesus is going to his hometown. 
Verse 45 says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So they were down in Jerusalem. They'd seen some cool stuff. They heard about Cana. And he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he made the water uh, go to wine, and then to Capernaum, where, he was, where there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point, his son was at the point of death. And Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. So now Jesus is going from the Samaritans who are historically enemies of the Jews, had a lot of mixed pagan worship, unlikely to believe in the Savior. And yet we see this kind of little revival going on in Samaria. And now he's going to his own people, the people you would expect maybe to believe in him. But as Jesus noted, no, a prophet actually isn't welcome in his own hometown. So another group of unlikely people to receive him as the Savior. These weren't just simply Jews that he was going to, but even Galileans, the, the, the hometown. People had seen his miracles, both in Cana and down in Judea. And it's interesting that John makes this note that Jesus had said that a prophet isn't welcome in his own hometown. Uh, Jesus is known as just the carpenter's kid. He's just kind of a, a nobody. Why would we trust the carpenter's kid? But here, it's interesting, if you caught that, that it kind of seems like John is contradicting himself. In 44, he says, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And then in 45, it says, the Galileans welcomed him. That, that seems kind of strange. It doesn't seem like that actually agrees. It seems like maybe it's a contradiction, but I don't think John's actually contradicting himself. Uh, I think John would be a pretty poor writer if he contradicted himself only one sentence later. Uh, so I think that what's going on here is something, uh, actually, once you see it, I don't think you can unsee it. Uh, being welcomed is far different than being honored. You can be welcomed by all kinds of people, but not honored by them. And the reasons are different. But right here, the Galileans, they welcome him. But John makes it clear in the next couple sentences that their words were welcoming, but that had nothing to do with honoring him as a savior. As soon as one of these welcoming Galileans comes up to him and asks him to perform a miracle, Jesus says, you people won't believe unless you get something from me. Now, the word you there in Greek, you might read it as he's just talking to this official, but that word you is, is plural. It's like usted in Spanish. It's plural. So it means you all, you people. So he's saying, so there's either a crowd that's kind of in this conversation, or maybe he's just speaking to the official, speaking of his people in general, Galileans. But he's saying to him, maybe with some people in earshot saying, you people, you won't believe me unless I do something for you unless I do some tricks, some miracles. So he's calling them out right away. They welcome him, but he knew that they weren't honoring him. He knew that's how it was gonna be. And so he just calls them out right away. If you remember going back to John chapter two, before we saw Nicodemus and the woman at the well, to, to preface this whole section of Jesus interacting with people, John chapter two, verse 24 says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, to people, because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. He sees right to the heart. You're welcoming me, but you're not honoring me. I know your motivation. 
You want something from me. People were welcoming him only because they wanted to get something. They didn't want to honor him as Messiah, these Galileans, like what had happened in Samaria, which was crazy it happened in Samaria. Church, it's entirely possible to be someone who welcomes Jesus into your own life, to welcome even much of his teaching, to pray to him, to receive gifts and blessings and favor and help, and yet not honor him. It is entirely possible to welcome him into your life and heart and yet not truly honor him. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But yet we see in Samaria, the purported enemy of the Jews, with all their mixed idolatry and their worship, they actually honored him as Messiah, an unlikely group who actually honors him as Messiah. But yet Jesus' own people, even the hometown crowds, just saw him as a genie in the bottle. Oh, here comes Jesus, the carpenter's kid, who can do some tricks for us, bless us with different things, a means to their own ends, their desires. And so he calls them out. Now what follows is even still more fascinating. In verse 49, even though Jesus calls them out, you people won't believe unless I do something, unless I do miracles. But the official, there's a tenacity in this official. It's like he doesn't even hear what Jesus says. Or maybe he's thinking, that's them. Yeah, that's them. That, that's what we've done. That's why we're kind of like, but he says, sir, come down before my child dies. He seems undeterred by Jesus' proclamation against the Galilean selfishness. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Now, we don't hear tone here, and I, I don't think that Jesus was like, go, oh, fine, your son will live. I don't think that that's what was going on. And the reason I don't think that, one, is because it doesn't sound like Jesus, first of all. But second of all, look what the man does right after that. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. I think if Jesus had this kind of annoying tone, he'd probably been like, what was it? what's his problem? I think he would have walked away discouraged, maybe cynical, but he goes away with faith. Something about Jesus' tone, maybe it was him looking at this official, piercing his eyes and his heart. It says that Jesus knows the heart of man. Maybe he looked at him and almost was saying, with his eyes and his tone, I know you're different. Go, your son will live. There's something different in your words and your faith. Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as the man was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour. When, when did he begin to get better? And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour, the very hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. See, now another thing that I think that just shows just this different type of faith that's going on inside this, this man, different than the other Galileans. He didn't just say, wow, awesome, my son's getting better, woo, and then just goes on his way forgetting about Jesus and just moving on to celebrate his son's health. 
He didn't consider this just kind of some coincidence. Oh, good, his body fought the fever. Yay. Oh, it must have been my wife's, you know, old wives' tale kind of remedy. Yay. No, immediately he thought, this must have been Jesus. It must have been. He says, what hour? When did this happen? And it's almost like when he asked, he knew what the answer was going to be. The seventh hour yesterday. And so right away, he just knew, yes, it was him. I believed him when he said it, and now I know for sure. And so he himself, it says, believed, and then all of his households. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. So similar to the Samaritan people, it was when this man heard for himself the words of Jesus he himself didn't just hear about the miracles of Cana. That's what drew him to go to Jesus. He says, I, I, I heard. That's what drew him. But experiencing the power of the Messiah himself, believing Jesus to be who he was, to really truly believe in his own heart, he had to actually hear from Jesus himself. And then he believed that he was indeed the Savior. Now, I want to circle back because there's a common truth here that is important for us, and I believe it's found in verses 31 to 38. Because here, as we saw, Jesus interacts with two different types of people, two groups of people. The Samaritans, who a Jew would never expect to repent and believe in the Savior. So very unlikely. And then the Jews of Galilee, who have seen the miracles and were called God's people, but they only wanted God for their convenience, their personal blessing, welcoming him on the outside, but not wanting him on the inside. So these people also were unlikely to seek out a, a savior. They wanted someone who would be a blessing. And that's it, just physical blessing. Two unlikely groups to respond to Jesus. And when it comes to our kingdom work ethic, when we're dealing with those kinds of people in our life, people that are unlikely to believe for whatever reason, they're good people, they're good moral people, they don't think they need a savior. I'm a good person. Or maybe the kind of people have so much mixed idolatry and different things in their life, we go, there's no way they would ever believe in Jesus. When we interact with those kinds of people, family members, friends, coworkers, it can be exhausting. It can be discouraging. But here's what Jesus teaches his disciples about the kingdom work ethic of evangelism and preaching the good news of salvation. He says in verse 35, do you not say, he's saying to the disciples, there's yet four months and then comes the harvest. He's speaking of the harvest season. So you typically sow or you plant maybe in late spring and then four months later, there's a harvest. But he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are already white for harvest. Already the one who reaps, who's getting the harvest is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. He's saying it's already possible to be a worker of God out reaping a harvest, even right now, seeing souls saved unto eternal life. And he says, so that the sower and the reaper, the one who plants and the one who harvests, can rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you didn't labor. So you're going to harvest something you didn't actually plant. Others have labored for it. They're the ones that planted, but you've entered into their labor and continued and finished the job that they started. Now in farming and gardening, as I mentioned, you sow a certain time. It's early spring in certain parts of the country. It's after the ground thaws. And then you have to wait months before it's time to reap. And it's, it's a long time to wait. You're kind of waiting for those first fruits. In the last um, 
few years, probably last three or four years, I've, I've taken uh, to gardening a lot. And I love working in my garden, planting trees, fruit trees. And uh, I've actually joked with some people. Uh, I, actually, there's part of it's not a joke. When I'm out there, it is kind of like my little sort of natural outdoor sanctuary where I go and I just, I'm just there. I'm, I'm weeding and I'm thinking about the weeds in my own life, spiritual weeds, sin, thinking about weeding the church. Um, I'm pruning. I'm thinking about myself being pruned, and I'm thinking about the times when there has to be pruning in people's lives. And I told, kind of half-jokingly, uh, but completely seriously, uh, that uh, I told a friend that uh, I, I like being out in my garden because when I prune, the plants don't talk back to me and get mad at me. Uh, so it's just this kind of place where I, I, it, there's a lot of meditation that goes on for me, but there's also something very relieving to be outside and see these things grow. And there's just so much, you know, biblical connections. Uh, but at my house, um, in the last few years, I've, I've planted about 27 or 30 fruit trees in the last few years. And, but I learned something as I was planning out how to plant these fruit trees to get kind of the, the most out of them. Uh, as I planted, I've, I planted, say, like four different apple trees, uh, six different like plum pluot trees, four peach trees. But what I did is I didn't plant them to where they would all come at once that all four apple trees give me a harvest all in June because then I'd have way too many apples to keep up with. So I learned this thing called successive ripening. I plant different types of trees, different variety. So my Anna apples, they come in June. So during June, we're harvesting Anna. We got a lot of Anna apples right now, but I've pulled all of them off the tree. But then guess what? In July, my Gala apples are gonna, it's gonna be time to harvest them because they come in July. Then in September, the Fuji's come. So then in September, I get to get some Fujis, but I'm not done yet because then in late October, November, the Granny Smiths come in. And so now all season long, I'm harvesting. I don't just harvest all at once or just wait for that first fruit and then it's just a ton. So this is, it's called successive ripening. So I'm at work in my orchard all season long. I'm never resting. I'm never just sitting back waiting for all four trees to come at one time and just twiddling my thumbs. When's the harvest coming? No, I'm always at work. I'm always out there. I'm always keeping my eye on something because in the peaches, it's the same thing. They go at different times because of the variety, the different type of fruit tree that they are. So from May through November, I'm not sitting around. I'm not just waiting for the harvest. There's always fruit to harvest. And so what Jesus is saying to his disciples is this. There's been a lot of sowing going on over the years from the Old Testament prophets to John the Baptist and now me. There's no time to sit around and just wait. In this new age that I'm now ushering in, the blinding that the enemy had over the nations, it's no longer. The prophets have sown and now there's plenty to harvest. Just look up, even the Samaritans are ready. The sowing, the planting has been going on for ages from the Old Testament prophets to me. And now it's time for successive ripening. It's time for an ongoing harvest. It's time to arm yourself with kingdom work ethic. See, the followers of Jesus, for us, it's not just preach the gospel and then just wait. Preach the gospel and just wait. Now, oftentimes it might be something like that for an individual in your life. For instance, I have to wait for the Granny Smiths to come in. I can't force it early. So it might be like that for an individual, but as you plant a seed on the left of you with this person, you don't just sit and wait. God brings in someone on your right side. 
And as this is kind of maybe germinating their thinking, whatever it is, but then over here you go, hey, but God brought me someone else over here, a different variety, so to speak. And so now you're sowing over here. But you don't just sit there and wait, but now God brings someone else. And so now you sow over here. And then all of a sudden you realize this person might be ready for a harvest. Something's happening in their heart. So you attend to this. But then you see that this person is maybe ready. You have another conversation. So we're not just sitting around and saying, yeah, I've been sharing the gospel with two people. And I'm just kind of waiting now. No, Jesus said, no, there's been, there's been sowing going on for years and years and years. And the time for successive ripening and an active and ongoing harvest is now. You can harvest even right now. Look, even the Samaritans are ready. We don't just sit and wait for those four months. No, we plant over here, and then we move on over here. We plant over here, then this person. And we're always in prayer saying, God, who are the people that you're bringing in my life that I can be sowing here and then maybe hopefully watering a bit and then coming over, sowing here, watering a bit. Then you got to water back over here and then maybe you harvest here. And, but we're always, our kingdom work ethic is we're always at work, not just sitting around waiting for four months for the next opportunity to have a conversation with this person on the left. God brings so many people in our lives from the proverbial Samaritans, the most unlikely people with their uh, mixed life of idolatry or whatever, and also the good religious moral people. He's gonna bring so many different types of people in your life that you might say to yourself, they're unlikely to listen to me about Jesus, but that's not up to you. Your job is to sow, to cast seed, to water, and when you see the harvest is ready, so you, you have no idea when this person on your right, you go and you start watering, you don't know that someone else might have sown a seed a year or two years ago. And that's what he's saying. You're gonna start reaping what someone else has sown. So you sit there and you go, I'm gonna have this conversation. I think they're unlikely, but I have no idea how they were raised. I don't know what the conversation they had two weeks ago. I don't know what's going on in their life. I, I know nothing about them, but I'm just, I'm just gonna sow. I'm gonna water. I'm gonna fertilize. It's not up to me to open their eyes. My job is just to, to, to reap the harvest that God is bringing about. I don't just sit around and, and wait but there is an ongoing harvest, ongoing harvest. We're always tending to the fruit that is all around our lives. One person just maybe seems dormant. Another person, the fruit is about to drop. We don't just sit back and wait. He says in verse 37, here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you didn't labor. Others have labored and you've now entered into their labor. And so we continue to work in faith with this kingdom work ethic of constantly just moving forward. We never know what's going on in someone's particular life. But here's the thing. We need to remember, we need to know that they need to hear the words of Jesus. Yes, they need to hear your testimony. They need that relationship with you to get their foot in the door, so to speak. Maybe your stories of how Jesus changed you will kind of intrigue them, but ultimately they need themselves to hear the words of Jesus. Your words don't cause them to become born again. First Peter chapter one, verse 23, Peter says, since you've been born again, not of, here's some more gardening phrases, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The seed that needs to be planted in them isn't just your testimony, though that's part of it, that might kind of till the ground and prepare the ground. But ultimately what you need to give them is the imperishable seed of the word of God. Not just here's what Jesus did for me, like the Samaritan woman. Again, that's kind of like digging the hole. 
but you got to put that seed in. you got to actually plant that seed of the Word of God. And all this is so that, as Jesus says, the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. I remember vividly when I was first intrigued by the way that Jesus had been working in the lives of other people in my life. I was not yet a believer. I just turned 18, and I'm hearing some stories from different people, some folks I met at this first church that I was visiting, and kind of looking at some of these guys going like, really, you follow Jesus? That's so weird. And I remember hearing them tell me their stories of how he saved them and changed them. And it intrigued me. Intrigued me enough to continue going to that church, have some conversations. I felt awkward at times when they kind of pushed a little bit and asked me personal questions, but I kind of kept coming back. Their testimony kind of drew me in. What they were saying about Jesus was perplexing to me and caused a lot of curiosity. But it wasn't until I saw in black and white with my own eyes the Word of God written in print. My aunt opened up a Bible for me. She showed me some verses. And I just thought to myself, I didn't know that was actually written down. I, I I believed these other people, just like the people believed the Samaritan woman. But it wasn't until I, I heard through my eyes the actual word of God that I was born again. And so for me, I mentioned that you know when I'm with people, even my baseball players, I'm, I'm always at work. One of my intended goals always isn't just to draw them into Joby, but ultimately that that's just kind of the foot in the door. My, my goal is I want to share God's word with my friends, my my believing friends, my non-believing friends, my baseball players. My goal is always, how do I share God's word? I'm going to dig a hole in the ground with the relationship and my own testimony and the way that I hopefully love them and care for them, but I can't just dig an empty hole. That's not going to save them. I I have to figure out, I have to pray, and I have to be at work sowing the imperishable seed of God's word in their hearts. And then as I do that, then... I go over here and I'm having conversations with other people. And then I'm checking in on these kids over here, checking on with these friends over there, whatever it might be. Now, so for some personal appeal to all of us, because here's what's interesting as Jesus points out, even the Samaritans, he says, look, it seems like we just planted, but even the harvest is immediate for the Samaritans. It doesn't matter who your friends are, what their background is. It might be months or years before they respond, or it might be immediate, like with the Samaritans. But we have to be ready to be introducing people to Jesus, sharing God's word with people. Paul says in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. In due season we will harvest, but we can't grow weary. He says, we will reap if we do not give up. And remember going back to verse 31, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. If we're gonna have this perspective, the lens to look up and see the harvest that's ready, if we wanna have this kingdom work ethic where we're always having our minds, how do we plant seed? How do we go from this person here, but then not just sitting and waiting, but always being at work in the kingdom? If we want to have that perspective, we have to be feasting off of the same exact food that Jesus feasts off of. 
and that is the desire to do the work and will of God, which is found in God's word. It's God's word, as Peter tells us, that is alive and abiding. It's God's word that is the thing that works in us and changes us and satisfies our souls and gives us the hunger to even do God's will, a hunger for kingdom work ethic that is always at work. That's why even the, our vision as a church states that God's glory is both the fuel of our strategy, it's the fuel of, of how we're gonna accomplish this task, as well as also the goal of our vision. It's our starting point and our ending point. It's wanting God's glory in our hearts as our fuel and wanting God's glory in the hearts of others. That's our goal. His glory, which is found only in, in, in God's word or see most clearly in God's word. God's glory in our hearts so that we would see God's glory among the nations. I want to close this morning praying to the Lord of the harvest, asking him to help us to have this, this kingdom work ethic, but also reminding us, sometimes we find ourselves on the other end of this. Maybe we can sometimes have our, our own faith devolve into just wanting God to bless us, to do things for us. Jesus didn't come just to be your genie just to perform things and do stuff for you. Sometimes we minimize him to that. But he came to this earth to be your savior, to save you, to give you new life, to make you alive on the inside. You know, Jesus could never give you in your eyes a never, another good gift ever again. That's not how it's gonna work. I'm just <laughs> but if he never chose to give you another good work, another raise, uh, another blessing. He could never do that, and yet he would still be so good and so worthy of worship because he has saved you. And yet he actually still gives us good gifts. But we sometimes minimize him to just being the God that we pray to when we need something, when we want something. But he came to save you. And there's no sin that is so awful, so bad, that he can't save you from it. And then for the Galilean Jews, for, for, for those of you who are, who are so, uh, you're, you're, you're good people. I'm looking around and I know most of you guys and most of you are pretty good people. Most of you. You're, you're, you're good people. But there's no amount of self-righteousness and good morality and good works that prevents you from needing a savior. To needing him to work in your heart each and every day, exposing sin, and not just exposing sin, but then changing your heart and helping you repent from that sin, replacing that sin with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't matter how Samaritanish we are or how Jewish Galilean we are, we need Jesus. We need him every single day. We need him to be our Savior. So I want to pray now and thank the Lord for his goodness towards us, his patience towards us, his, his desire to seek and save the lost and his desire to use us even to sow and to reap the harvest of our friends and family, our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates. It's incredible that he uses us to tend to his vineyard, to his garden, his, his orchard. Let's pray and thank him for this. Heavenly Father, we are humbled and amazed 
Let you, Lord, uh, you use us in all of our weaknesses, all of our foibles, all of our thoughtlessness, our carelessness, our selfishness, uh, the times that we sit down with someone and we just think about ourselves, what we can get out of a conversation or relationship, and oftentimes we walk away from those and your Holy Spirit convicts us and we, we regret certain things we said or how we missed opportunities. Lord, we want and we desire to have the kingdom work ethic that your son had when he was on this, this earth. We know that it's not our, our actions that save people, but we want to be about your business, sowing and reaping. As we cast seed and water, you provide the increase, and then we get to harvest. We, we, we need to pray, Lord, that... <laughs> it's funny, we don't need to pray that you bring people in our lives. You already have done that. We need to pray that you'd open our eyes to see them. You've already brought plenty of people in our lives to share the truth of your son with. We want to be good vineyard workers. We want to see and, and learn how to get in a better rhythm of the successive ripening, having multiple irons in the fire, so to speak, wanting to see your glory in their hearts to see them come to know the, the beauty and greatness and joy of knowing Jesus, that they be saved from their sin and now able to look forward to eternal life because of what he's done for them. Lord, I hope and pray that you would help us to take opportunities to share your word with them so that they would see and hear your word and then believe your word, your truth, they would be saved. They'd be born again. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We worship you. Help us to not just welcome you into our lives, but to honor you with our lives. It's the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.